You know, today, one of the most exciting things that, uh, as people, we can experience, um, and, and as many of you here have been a part of this or will be a part of it one day, is, is really the, you know, the birth of, of, of your child, right? And I still remember very fondly, um, it was such an emotional experience for us, uh, my wife and I, and, you know, she's there, and my daughter's there, uh, sitting there in the back, so... Got to be careful what I say here. Um, no, but, you know, the, it's, it's amazing because you have so many months of anticipation, right? You're, and, and every month is a little bit different, so there's something new that gets thrown your way. I mean, you know, one day, uh, all of a sudden, you know, there's the ultrasound, and then you keep going, and then you can find out uh, whether your child will be a boy or a girl, and then you keep going, and the belly starts to really come out, and you can start to feel the movements, right? And then that last ultrasound where you can really start to even make out, right? The first ultrasound, I didn't know what I was looking at. It looked like snow on TV, right? Shh. Uh, what's the head again? What are we looking at? Looked like a, a lima bean to me, right? And then the last ultrasound, though, you really start to see and and. You, you begin to identify, man, that's, that's our child, right? That's our child. And then, you know, the, the joy of that moment when finally everything is finished and you get to hold your child in your hands. It's an undescribable feeling. I didn't think it would be uh, like that for me, but it was, it was uh, I, it's hard to describe. And the reason why I, I, I kind of bring this up and just to kind of get our minds going Think about all of that, but what it must have been like for the Israelite families living in the time of Exodus 2, all right? Here in verse 11, Moses is, I think, 40. I think that's what Stephen says in his speech in Acts 7. But in verse 1 of Exodus 2, you know, Moses is going to sort of recount the story of his birth, the thing about his birth, though, he was born in a time and in a place where the king of the land, Pharaoh, had said, look, any male Hebrew child will be thrown into the Nile, killed. So if you're the, the mom and the dad here mentioned in verse 1, and I, I thought it was very interesting that um, Moses really wanted to emphasize that his father was from the tribe of Levi. His mother was from the tribe of Levi. He was 100% Levi. There's this joy at having given birth to a child, but you have to remember, there was no ultrasound at that point. There was no way for them to know whether their child was going to be a boy or a girl until he or she was born. And so now you're going through that entire nine months, wondering, waiting, and Moses is born, and now, I don't know, you, I, I don't know, I can't imagine what is going on in their minds because there's the joy of having a son, but there's also the absolute terror of knowing that if Pharaoh finds out about this boy, he's dead. We're told uh, that for three months, Moses' mother was able to raise him in the home. 
keep them hidden. But for whatever reason, and the details aren't given in Exodus 2, at the three-month mark, Moses' mother no longer felt like she could do this. And so she does something that for us today would be horrific if we had to go through this. She takes a basket and puts her three-month-old child in the basket and puts the basket in the, the reeds and the bushes along the side of the river to hide baby Moses. Now, look, you know, many of us, we, when we were children, we grew up in the era where our parents didn't care what we did after school. As long as we were home in time for dinner, and as long as our report cards came home showing whatever grades they wanted on there, they really didn't care, right? Like, my parents did not care. They, they bought me a bike as soon as I could ride a bike, and it was basically I just had to be home in time for dinner. If I wasn't home, home in time for dinner, that's when I would get in trouble, right? Is any, anyone else... Yeah, right? That was our childhood. So that's what we did. I mean, you made friends with all the kids in the neighborhood, and you made like your little bike gang, right? And you would get into fights with the kids from the other, you know, you know, a few blocks down because they're playing on the field that you're, you're playing on or whatever. And you just, you know, you go exploring, you go riding around, and you think about that, right? For a few hours every single day, our parents had no clue what we were doing or where we were at. Imagine raising your children like that today. It's different, right? A different time, different era. We, none of us would probably raise our children in the same, same manner today. But think about this. All right? Now, what Moses' family was doing was probably, most likely, not... You know, Moses didn't live 24... I, I mean, I don't know for certain, but all the commentators who write about this talk about how it wasn't like Moses was in the, the basket in, in, in the bushes, 24 hours a day, you know, for his whole life. It was most likely a situation where the family was trying to hide him during the most common search times, which would be during the days. So for several hours every day, they would have to put Moses into that basket, and they would put him and hide him, and they would send his sister older sister, to kind of hang around, be nonchalant, right? Can you imagine a, a, a child, a girl trying to play cool <laughs> and just, you know, sort of hanging around the river all day, playing? I mean, I could almost imagine tons of kids out there because they're all doing the same thing. What's interesting is that Moses, he uses the word, the same exact Hebrew word, as, is, as he uses in Genesis 6 to 8. And in Genesis 6 to 8, the, the famous story of the flood and Noah and the ark, the same word he used in Genesis 6, 6 to 8 to describe the ark that Noah built is the same word he used to describe the basket that he was placed in by his mother every day. And I'm not the only one who thinks this, but this was most likely done on purpose. Because as a reader and as a hearer, as the people of God who this was written to, you would automatically begin to remember and to recall the protection of God even during the flood and of God saved his people. And in the same way as Moses writes this, his, 
you know, his thought is, man, God delivered me during that time. I was a child. I was supposed to die. I was supposed to be killed. I was supposed to be thrown into the river. But instead, because of by the hand of God. So he's calling attention not only onto the wisdom of his mother and the care of his family and his sister helping out, but to draw our attention to God and his deliverance in this incredible time and situation. Well, I, we don't have time to go over all the details right now, and you could read you know, the first uh, 10 verses of this chapter later, but to make a long story short, Pharaoh's daughter discovers the basket one day. But instead of having Moses thrown into the river and killed, he's saved. His sister shows up and sees that obviously Pharaoh's daughter has, has a heart towards this infant and this child, and she makes this brilliant suggestion, do you want me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse and to raise this child? And Pharaoh's daughter agrees. And so now consider this. Not only is Moses saved and delivered, but now his own mom can freely raise him, care for him, and she's most likely going to be taken care of to raise her own son. And, and Moses basically ends up getting adopted into the household of Pharaoh, the king of the land. She even gives him an Egyptian name. That's the end of verse 10. By verse 11, Moses skips however many years, like basically 30-some, 40 years, and we get to verse 11. Now he's all grown up. He's a man. The first thing we see in verse 11 is that Moses must have had some kind of struggle in his life because he was born 100% into the tribe of Levi, which is 100% Hebrew. 100%. But he was raised in the household and in the uh, family and in the wealth and the privilege and the poverty, uh, uh, not poverty, the opposite of poverty, of Pharaoh's court. And so you see, on one hand, he has everything he could want. But when he looks out at his brothers, when he looks out at his sisters, what does he see? He sees injustice. He sees suffering. He sees economic, social slavery. He sees a terrible life for all Hebrew people, but yet he is living in luxury. And maybe as a child, you might enjoy that. But as you get older, at some point, there's a struggle that must have existed in his life and in his heart. But by the time we get to verse 11, something had happened where now, when he looks out at the Hebrew people, all right, verse 11, look at verse 11. When he looks at them and he sees them, he now identifies with them. Twice in this one verse, he uses 
that phrase, his people, his people, right? He went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. So by verse 11, I think it's clear as to whom now Moses identifies with. He is a Hebrew. And he doesn't like what he's seeing. Somewhere along the line, he's developed this burden. The burden of the Hebrew people became his burden. The suffering of the Hebrew people and the slavery became his suffering and his slavery. And he comes across an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Maybe it's the idea of a slave driver beating a slave. Whether this was in view of many or whether it was something he saw by himself, text doesn't make clear. What does make, what is clear in verse 12 though is at the point now where he wants to do something about it, he looks this way, he looks that way, and he sees that he's alone, he sees no one, he struck down the Egyptian, he hides him in the sand. He does something about it. This is a difficult thing for us to consider. On one hand, you see this as an act of redemption, of helping someone, of loving your brother. But on the other hand, we see this as murder. Philip Riken, in his commentary, he points out something that I thought was very interesting. He talks about the fact that he thinks even if Moses was caught and tried in a court of law in that time, he believes that Moses would have had an excellent case, an excellent defense. He points out that, first of all, Moses was a prince of Egypt. He was a prince, a grandchild to Pharaoh himself. It is most likely, well, it's most unlikely that the court would have condemned, right, the grandchild of Pharaoh, a prince of Egypt, over the killing of a slave driver. It could have also been very well argued that Moses was actually trying to save a life, that he was trying to intervene and trying to help. He saw someone in danger. He saw the slave driver with intention to kill, with intention to murder. And what he did, he jumped in. Maybe he wasn't intending to kill, but he did. It could have been very well argued according to uh, what was at that time an ancient legal principle, the law of retaliation, the principle and the law of an eye for an eye. He intended to kill this man, and so he got his justice. But Riken goes on to say, even if there was a good case he could have made in the court of law at that time, it doesn't change the fact that what he did was wrong. He killed someone. It went against the principles of life that God had established in the creating of man. Uh, it was wrong because it was unnecessary that he could have intervened without killing him. 
that he could have stopped what he saw earlier, that he did not have to resort to murder. I think there's evidence in the text that Moses himself thought it was wrong. Because what does verse 12 say about what he did before he struck the man down? What does he do? He looks this way, and he looks that way, looks this way and that way. Have you guys ever done that? All right. If, if you see a child, if you see your child doing this, looking this way, and then, you know, they're like this, and then they're kind of like, ah, and they, you see your child looking around like that, chances are they're about to do something wrong. They're not about to do something that they want everyone in the world to know and see, right? So I, 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 I do think Moses himself thought, all right, what I'm about to do, all right, I don't want anyone to see this. And not only that, but after he struck the Egyptian down, what does he do? Buries him in the sand. Gets rid of the evidence. Again, if you see your child digging in your backyard and trying to bury something, right? there's a chance he's trying to hide something. I think Moses knew it was wrong, and that's why he's trying to make that extra effort to make sure he doesn't get caught. He wants to be alone, he doesn't want to be seen, and he doesn't want the body to be found. But what I want us to see, and I think it's, it's going to be kind of now, I'm really leading into really the main point, so just hang in there with me. Okay. Moses' actions show us, even though his actions were not right, that there was something important going on in his heart. Right? He was, remember, in a position of power. He was on the, you know, I mean, his life was in coast mode. There was no struggles ahead, really, for him. I mean, you're in the household of Pharaoh, you're in the courthouse. Uh, you're, you're there. You're, you're at the place where other people look and say, that's where I want to be. That's where I want to get to. That's the life I want to have. The power, the position, the privileges, the wealth, the prosperity, that's, he had it. Hebrews 11 says something really interesting about Moses. Verse 24 says, and just listen to it. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The author of Hebrews, the unknown author to Hebrews, he looks back on the story of Moses. He looks back on Exodus 2. In fact, the words are very similar to what we read today, this morning. And his take on it, and it's important for us because we understand the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament. 
What we see is a description of Moses' faith, and it was his faith that allowed him to say, you know what, I may have everything in this life. I may have what other people want and desire. I may have the wealth, I may have the power, I may have the privilege and the prosperity, but you know what? It is better for me to have what? The reproach of Christ. That that's a greater reward. To suffer with God's people is much greater than to live this life in wealth and comfort and privilege. And right away, I think for us today, this is something for us to consider. Right? Because I think the Orange County SoCal dream is to get where Moses was. We all dream of hitting the $900 million super lotto jackpot. Did someone get that last night? What? What what is the next one going to be at then? All right, if someone wins, can you make sure Crossway gets a building (laughs) out of this and, you know... Let's, yeah, let's, I don't know, where am I going? All right, stay, stay focused, stay focused. You know, I, I think the reality, though, is that we want to be where Moses was. And it's not just for us, but a lot of times it's for our children, it's for our descendants. Our dream is that our children would have even more comforts than we had or more joy than what we have. And so we're on this trajectory And I'm not here to judge anyone's lifestyle or anything. Hey, look, that's all for you and God and whatever. But what I'm saying is maybe what we need to do is consider what was described as faith in Hebrews 11. Would we be willing to pursue the reproach of Christ and leave behind maybe what we had or what we had to enjoy or what we had earned or what we had even lucked into so that we could suffer with Christ and suffer with his church and suffer with his people. Because that's faith. The ability to see what the true reward is, the ability to see beyond some of the hardships of today or even the rewards and temptations of today. So that's point one. All right? Who do we identify with? Right? What are we looking for? And where are we in our lives and hearts? That's point one. Point two is this. I think when we look at even something like this and we see Moses' heart and his life, it should point us to Christ. Because after all, Even Christ himself, after his resurrection, walking with his disciples, he pointed to these books in the Old Testament. And he showed his disciples how Genesis, how Exodus talked about him. You know, Moses may have left the court of Pharaoh, but Jesus Christ left the heavenly and eternal court. He was the prince of an even greater kingdom. 
And he had even greater privileges and even greater comfort and even greater joy and greater everything than Moses did. But all of that was nothing he considered something to be grasped. Instead, he humbled himself and he left that kingdom and he said, it is better to suffer for my church. Amen. That's our savior. That's our redeemer. You know, Moses ran into problems because of what he did. You got to imagine, Moses is pumped up. He just killed a man who hurt his brother. Oh, yeah. Right? And then what happens? After he kills a man for, for, uh, for beating the, his, his brother, he goes out the next day, and what does he see? He sees two Hebrew guys fighting. They're struggling. What are you guys doing? Maybe Moses envisioned himself now a deliverer. Hey, this is not why I killed the Egyptian. This is not why I stood up for you guys. This is not why I risked everything, all of my wealth and my position and power so that you guys could just keep fighting and hurting each other. Why do you strike your companion, verse 13? But listen to the response Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? That word that he uses is a clear word to describe murder. He doesn't say you struck the Egyptian. He doesn't say you hit the Egyptian. He doesn't say you protected us, you helped us. He says you murdered him, and now are you going to murder us? Who made you a prince and a judge? So right away, Moses' leadership was rejected because of his actions. But think about Christ. He didn't murder anyone. Instead, he was killed. Right? He was the one person who could actually say, I've never done anything wrong. And yet he paid our price. He received our penalty. But because of that, I think, and this is the second point, we have no right ever, ever to say to Christ, who made you a judge over us? Who made you a prince over us? We don't have the right to reject his authority, his leadership, his lordship. Amen? He is our king. He is our lord. He is our savior because he left his court to die for us, to suffer for us, to struggle for us. And he did it by dying on the cross. He didn't do it in power and in anger and he murdered a bunch of people and he flashed lightning bolts down and killed everybody who was against his church. He died for us. That's point two of a two-point sermon. (laughs) So to recap, where is your allegiance? Who do you identify with? As the kingdom of this world and the temptations offered within 
Has that swayed you to avoid suffering at all costs? Has that turned you into someone who would never stand up for Christ? Secondly, it's just, I think, just a reminder of the gospel, of who our Savior is, of who our Redeemer is, of who Jesus Christ is, and what our response ought to be. We can't reject his leadership and his lordship. Instead, we are slaves of righteousness, no longer slaves of sin. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Holy Father, we confess to you that often the temptation of the world is strong, that, Lord, we often want to really not suffer, not struggle, not have any pain in our lives. Instead, what we want to do is be comfortable and we want, to, we want to enjoy everything that this world has to offer. And not that that's necessarily bad, but sometimes it clouds our vision, it clouds our purpose, and we forget who we are. We pray that you would remind us today and every day of our lives that we are your people, that we are part of the church, and that we ought to rather suffer with Christ and to pursue the pleasures of sin, that there is much greater reward in suffering with Christ. And secondly, to be reminded of your great and incredible love for us, which drove you to the cross, which led you to leave the riches and the wealth and the privilege and all these things of the kingdom of heaven for our sake, for our benefit. May we not be a people and a church that tries to reject your leadership, that tries to reject your headship over us, Lord. Instead, we want to obey you, Lord. Give us that heart. We want you to be our Lord and our King. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.